You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I've gotten a lot of emails from Bernie Sanders supporters, and I am a Bernie Sanders supporter too. I am also a Hillary Clinton supporter. I am for Bernie, I am for Hill. Or I am for both or either. Go Burnhill, Bill, Burns, whatever. Go Democrats. That's me. But I've gotten a million emails over the last couple of weeks telling me that Hillary Clinton was wrong on marriage equality back when Bernie Sanders was right on marriage equality. So for this reason, because Bernie was always on our side, always on your side, Dan, about marriage equality, you should, of course, as a marriage equality advocate yourself, support Bernie. And my position was and remains and has been, yeah, a lot of people were against marriage equality back when Hillary Clinton was against marriage equality, including Barack Obama, who I sent piles of money to and voted for twice. And so I wasn't going to let that be an issue for me because she came around and that's what we had. We asked people to change their mind. They changed their minds. And then you're like, yeah, you changed your mind. Thank you. Not fuck you. You changed your mind too late. But thanks. Not how politics works, right? So I was listening to a podcast this weekend, a political podcast made in Spokane, Washington, my husband's hometown of all places, hosted by a guy who is totally in the tank for Bernie Sanders, as am I. Like I said, I am totally in the tank for Bernie Sanders, but I am bitanctual. I am in two tanks at once, Bernie's and Hillary's. And he played a clip of Hillary Clinton in another subtle effort to convince me to be for Bernie only played this clip of Hillary Clinton talking about marriage and unpacking her opposition to marriage equality when she was a sitting U.S. senator in the 2000s. I believe that marriage is not just a bond, but a sacred bond between a man and a woman. I have had occasion in my life to defend marriage, to stand up for marriage, to believe in the hard work and challenge of marriage. So I take umbrage at anyone who might suggest that those of us who worry about amending the Constitution are less committed to the sanctity of marriage or to the fundamental bedrock principle that it exists between a man and a woman going back into the mists of history as one of the founding foundational institutions of history and humanity and civilization, and that its primary principal role during those millennia has been the raising and socializing of children for the society into which they are to become adults. Damn. Those are some vintage right-wing talking points. That was everything the religious right says now, and it was everything the religious right was saying then in the mid-2000s when Hillary Clinton, senator from New York, had that to say about marriage and why she opposed same-sex marriage. I'm not going to impact the lies about the mists of time. 
or the validity of traditions going back millennia, slavery, a tradition that went back millennia. Not a great tradition. We put an end to it. Excluding some people from the rights and responsibilities of marriage. Perhaps a tradition that went back a very long time. Not a good enough reason to stick with bigotry and discrimination and violence. There was a violence to preventing people from marrying. But I'm not going to go into all of that, actually. I just said I'm not going to go into it. Then I started to go into it. I'm just going to point out that that's really what Hillary said is the extended EP version of the shitty, shitty thing Barack Obama said when he was running for president in 2008, 2007, when he said that he opposed same-sex marriage because when a man marries a woman, God is in the mix, which makes you wonder what the candidate thought or wanted people to think he thought might be in the mix when a man marries a man. That wasn't easy to hear. That wasn't easy to hear when Barack Obama said it in 2007 when he was running for president. Voted for him anyway, wrote a check, sent it to him anyway. And what I heard this weekend coming out of Hillary Clinton's mouth from the Wayback Machine on the Fire You Can't Put Out podcast, that wasn't easy to hear either. But you know what's easy to hear now? You know what I like to hear now? Hillary Clinton's position on marriage now. Even her self-serving rationalizations about marriage now where she wants to suggest perhaps that she was always for gay rights and always a defender of gay rights when clearly that is not true. And yet, I am in the tank. I'm bitanctual. I am in the tank for Hillary and Bernie, both. And why? Why doesn't Hillary's position on marriage then disqualify her from half my support now? I guess not my full support now, but half my support. But if she gets the nomination, my full fucking support. This is bad politics. I have to say, I, I keep watching Hillary being mouth about her position on marriage because of what it used to be. And I keep listening to people and seeing people on Twitter yell at LGBT supporters of Hillary Clinton as if they are somehow idiots or turncoats or morons. And I just keep thinking this is terrible politics. That This is bad and not bad for Hillary Clinton, bad for us. Because essentially what people are doing here, looking back over the last 15 years of the struggle for marriage equality, boils down to this. We were going, please, please change your mind. And they, politicians like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, were going, no. And we went, pretty please. And eventually they said, okay, we've changed our minds. We're on your side. And so now what are we going to say? We're going to say, fuck you for not always agreeing with me. Pretty please change your mind. Okay, fuck you. That's bad politics. Yes, Hillary Clinton's support for marriage equality may be a political calculation. There may be not one shred of sincere feeling in it. And you know what? We worked really hard to change the math so that those political calculations that surprise politicians routinely make would begin to add up in our favor. So sincere change of heart or political calculation, either way, I will take it. And it's fucking moronic. It is moronic politics to attack a politician for not coming around on your issues fast enough because we have other issues that we are going to be pressing them on. Anti-discrimination, trans rights, trans bathroom bills, RIFRAs, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. There's other stuff we are going to be going to these polls and asking them to side with us on. And if they oppose us, asking them to change sides and stand with us. And if politicians who are watching what's going on right now on the Dem side, if they see that there is no political upside, no political benefit in changing their positions, they're going to be harder to persuade. So we are fucking ourselves with this shit. 
not Hillary Clinton. We are fucking ourselves because what we're saying is to politicians who would disagree with us on whatever is when you finally come around and agree with us, we are going to continue to pummel you. We are going to punish you once you agree with us for not always having agreed with us. And that is dumb. That is political malpractice. And it's really got to stop. So, yeah, Hillary opposed us then on the issue of marriage equality. She's with us now. And we should say every once in a while, you were really wrong back then. Remember how wrong you were? But welcome and happy to have you. Not you were really wrong then. And fuck you. Fuck you eternally. Fuck you for agreeing with us now because you didn't agree with us then. So fuck you. And incidentally, Bernie Sanders opposed marriage equality in the mid-2000s as well. And if you don't believe me, Google it. And you can watch Rachel Maddow talk to him about it and ask him about it. So Hillary Clinton, not always with us on the issue of marriage equality. Bernie Sanders, not always with us either on the issue of marriage equality. If you want to vote for someone who is always with us on the issue of marriage equality, you will have to write in my dead mom's name on your primary ballot because there ain't no other Democrat who is always with us besides Judy Savage. All right, coming up on today's show, Planned Parenthood. We have a guest expert here from Planned Parenthood to tackle a whole mess of your medical questions and reproductive questions on today's show, Magnum and Micro. Hey, Dan. So here's the problem. I'm 18, but I said on Tinder that I'm 20. I live on my own. I support myself fully. I'm a full-time student, and I live with two 30-year-old roommates. So I would consider myself a little bit more mature than the average 18-year-old, and I just said I was 20 because I'm tired of being underestimated for my age. But the problem is I met a guy, and we've been dating for a little bit over a month. I'm seeing him all the time. We talk every day. He's the most kind, funny, considerate, sweet, (laughs) talented, amazing person I've ever met, and I'm, like, in love. And... I know that sounds naive because I'm super young, but the problem is he thinks that I'm a year and a half older than I really am. And I don't want to have to sit him down and say, hey, listen, um, I'm a teenager (laughs) because it sounds psycho. And I know that. And I feel bad for lying. And I haven't lied to him about anything else. I thought this was going to be a white lie, but now I feel guilty and I don't know what to say. (laughs) Um, Please help me. Thank you. Tell him the fucking truth. He's going to find out eventually if he regards your deception as an unforgivable betrayal or deceit, then the relationship's over and you know not to tell this lie in the future because it could cost you a future with somebody else who might come along who's equally as wonderful as this guy. But if he's as kind and funny and considerate and sweet as you believe him to be, it's not going to be a problem because your reasons for rounding yourself up by a year and a half – are totally understandable, not entirely legitimate, but completely understandable. You're more of an adult than most 18-year-olds would be. You're at college. You're supporting yourself. You're living on your own, and you didn't want people to make assumptions about you that weren't true based on the arbitrary number 18, which could mean that you're a high school student and still living at home with mom and dad, and so you fudged your age just a little bit, and for understandable reasons, and if He can't understand those reasons, even if he's a little annoyed by the deceit, then he's not as kind and funny and considerate and sweet a guy as you believe him to be. It'll be a very revealing moment. 
then he's not as kind and funny and considerate and sweet a guy as you believe him to be. Uh, I have a male friend who's a coworker, and uh, he's dating a female uh, who's also a coworker of mine, not really a friend. Uh, they haven't had a very good relationship. They've always fight and argued uh, all the time. But anyway, there was an incident the other night where apparently she struck him with a bottle and he got his uh, neck cut. He had to go to the hospital and stuff. But anyway, I heard about this and uh, my girlfriend ended up mentioning it to someone and it got back to this girl. And um, she's, uh, I talked to her and she told me like they regret what happened. They're going to quit drinking, work on a relationship, blah, blah, blah. But um, she pretty much was just telling me and, and my girlfriend that we should mind our business. You know, and they're working on it and uh, whatnot. And that's what I'm just wondering. It's like, does this qualify? Because this to me is like kind of domestic violence kind, you know? And like, does this really qualify as like, mind your business? You know, even if they say like, everything's okay and stuff. This doesn't just qualify as domestic violence. This absolutely is domestic violence. Hitting an intimate partner with a beer bottle and cutting them is domestic violence. Even if the person doing the hitting is not the dude in an opposite sex relationship, still domestic violence. There is a stigma and there is a misconception that's common out there, which is that women can only be victims of domestic violence and ever perpetrators of domestic violence, which will come as news to men who have had abusive female partners, men who have been victims of domestic violence, and they are out there. And the stigma is so huge that a lot of those men have a hard time coming forward, seeking help when they need help. And also women who are in same-sex relationships who have been victims of domestic violence. Women can indeed commit acts of domestic violence. And this was an act of domestic violence. It is also not your business. If he wants to stay and if he is not pressing charges, there's not much you can do about it except speak your piece. You can go to him as a friend and say what you think needs to be said and he may need to hear and then he gets to make his own choices and hopefully they will be the wrong choices and in your conversation with him, hopefully he will tell you that they're taking it seriously, that she's in counseling, that they're getting help, that if this ever happens again or anything close to it and this is the only second chance he will ever give her and blah, 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 hopefully he'll say things to you that make you feel more at peace with his choice not press charges and stay in this relationship. But again, yes, absolutely. This isn't kind of like domestic violence. This is, or this was absolutely an act of domestic violence. Hi, Dan. I am calling because my long-term boyfriend of two years wants me to cuckold him. I'm very excited about the idea and we've talked about it for a long time. I have been talking to some other guys just playing with the idea, thinking about it. I am wondering if you think I am responsible to tell other guys that's why I'm talking to them. I am mostly, I am interested in, in them sexually and I do want to have our own experience, but ultimately I'm going to go home and tell my boyfriend what happened to get him off. This goes to the secret perv thing. Like, do people have a right to know that they are contributing to someone else's secret perving on them? For instance, someone who is a foot fetishist, who works in a shoe store, who is going to go home later that night and perhaps jack off about all the lovely feet that he got to see and all the lovely shoes he got to slip onto those lovely feet that day. Is he disqualified from working in a shoe store? 
if he keeps it in his pants, if he's not creepy at other people, if no one can perceive his secret perving on the job, should he have to say before he puts a shoe on some lovely lady's foot, by the way, I'll jack off about this later. Does she have a right to that information? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that we can all secretly perv a little bit here and there around the edges. And so long as that other person isn't aware of the secret perving or made uncomfortable by it, it's kosher. Is this different? There's a secret perv going on here. Your boyfriend is going to secretly perv on the sex that these guys had with you later. They're not going to know about it. Will they be harmed by it? I don't think so. They will not be harmed by it. So long as you are clear with these guys that this is an NSA thing, a casual thing, there's no hope of a relationship ever coming from this interaction, you don't have to then say, because I'm already in a relationship, if all you're contracting for and contacting each other about is casual sex, the person with whom you're having casual sex, a hookup, an NSA thing, they're not entitled to your biography or a list of all of your personal connections or a flow chart about your sex life. They just aren't. I would be curious, though, how your boyfriend feels about this. Some cuckold fetishists get off on the guy knowing that the woman that they're sleeping with has a boyfriend who is being cuckolded in this moment. But that's part of the turn-on for him. If your boyfriend wants these other guys to know that you have a boyfriend who is being displaced and humiliated because his girlfriend is having sex with other men and then going to rub his nose in it, well, then they have to know. If that's part of his kink, if that's not part of his kink, if he just gets off on you having sex with other men and you aren't allowing those other men to make assumptions about your intentions toward them that are not true, you're not allowing them to think that anything long term or even regular could come from this. You don't have to tell them about the secret perv ing that's going on after or around your interactions. Hi, Dan. I'm a bi lady and I've been with my boyfriend for about two years. We have a really good relationship, and about a year ago, he felt comfortable enough to tell me that sometimes he thinks about cross-dressing and is really turned on by chicks with dicks. At first, I was a little disappointed that I wasn't or I couldn't be his fantasy, but I soon got over that and got extremely curious about it, and it honestly really turned me on, even though it was a little strange. I didn't tell him I thought it was a little strange at first because he was obviously embarrassed about it and kind of ashamed. He has told me that until we talked about it, it wasn't that big of an interest to him. Just a little odd turn on for him to think about sometimes while he was masturbating. But after sharing this with me, he says that it has grown into a full-blown fantasy of his to be fucked like a slutty little girl. And since this, we've done some things, like I've asked him tons of questions, and we've dressed him up all sexy when he's fucking me a couple times, and we've used a strap-on a couple times. And even though I'm 100% supportive of him exploring this side, there's, like, still something a little strange. It's never been, like, completely comfortable. I told him this, and ever since... He hasn't brought it up. I don't really understand my discomfort, and I guess that's where my question comes in. Um, Do you have a perspective on where it might be coming from? Like, I wonder if it's because he isn't fully comfortable with this side of himself yet and with sharing it. 
although he has expressed that he wants to share it with me and it, how it's been a relief to share it. What I would really love is some advice on how to break the tension. There's the tiniest shift you need to make in how you regard his kinks. You say that his fantasy really turns you on even though it is a little bit strange. And the shift you need to make is so minor. His fantasy really turns you on because it is so strange. Not despite the fact that it is so strange, but because it is so strange, because it is so transgressive, because it is so taboo, because it is so risky in a way. Not risky health-wise or anything, but risky culturally. The, the, the culture's obsession with gender norms and enforcing them sometimes through violence. And here you guys are in the privacy of your own home, in your bedroom, really violating the fuck out of those gender norms. He's dressed up like, quote-unquote, a slutty little girl. You're wearing a strap-on. You're fucking his ass. You're just tearing up the manual and being and doing whatever the fuck you want. And that's kind of awesome and really transgressive. And it's fueled by all sorts of cultural norms and expectations, some of them deeply sexist and very limiting, often for men, you know, who they're allowed to be and what they're allowed to feel and what they're allowed to experience. And that can really enter a guy's erotic subconscious and be spat out into all sorts of crazy kinks and fetishes, as it has perhaps with your boyfriend. And so what do you do to, to break the tension? I think the quickest way to break the tension is for both of you to accept that this is some crazy fucked up shit that you both enjoy. So long as it's consensual, so long as you guys are communicating, so long as you are deriving pleasure from this, you both, and he particularly needs to let go of the shame. Initially, he had your permission. Initially, you encouraged him to dive in. He got that it really turned you on, and then he went for it, right? And I think he's shining you on a little bit when he says that this was just an interest before, but it wasn't until you encouraged him that it became a full-blown kink. It was always a full-blown kink. He was always really into this. He's been jacking off about this forever. Suddenly, there was a partner who was indulging him, and he exposed himself to you. He really let you see who he is sexually, his erotic fantasies, that private space. He opened that all up to you and made himself vulnerable, really vulnerable. And then you expressed your discomfort and he shut down. He's like, holy shit, right? And then he started making excuses that – you know, it wasn't, you know, it was just a kink. It was just a little interest. It wasn't, it didn't want a full-blown kink until, until, you know, your match met my gasoline and then it was a conflagration. And he's backpedaling because he feels shame or there's residual shame there. And he worries that you're judging him. And in a way you are because your sort of incohate floating sense of discomfort around what you're doing that really isn't tied to anything except I think this expectation on your part that this should make you feel uncomfortable and therefore it does make you feel uncomfortable because it should, but that's not really tied to anything. You don't feel unsafe. You don't feel unloved. You don't feel violated or used. Hopefully you don't mention feeling any of those things. Your discomfort is just rooted again in that sentence that you spoke that just leapt out at me. It really turns you on even though it's a little strange. No, because – it's a little strange because it's transgressive. It turns you on and that's okay. I would encourage you to maybe dial it back a little bit. Maybe take pegging off the table for a while and just slow walk back into this. Go to him to break the ice and say, I think you know, perhaps you felt that I drew you out and then judged you. 
And perhaps I did. And it was just me wrestling with my own feelings and my own hangups and conflicts about what we're doing. But now that I've really thought about it, because Uncle Dan helped me really think about it, there's no reason for me to be uncomfortable with this. I dig it. You dig it. It makes me happy. It makes you happy. Let's baby step our way into it again. And I think when you have that conversation with him, you should really ask him to be fully honest with you. It's not just an interest that then became a full-blown kink with your encouragement. It always was a full-blown kink. What happened was with your encouragement, he outed himself about it to you. And you want him to feel safe to be out about it to you again without having to dial it back, without having to minimize it. You also might want to say, if this is indeed how you feel, that this is a place you want to go with him and go regularly, but it's not the only place you want to go with him sexually, that you still want to be able to have sex with him that's vanilla or that where you get to be the pretty girl and he gets to be the dude that you still want to have the sex life you had for that first year be a part of the sex life you now have that includes this other stuff, this other stuff that's great, this other stuff that you say in your own words really turns you on. Go for it. How interesting, how fun, how crazy, how transgressive, how gender bendy, how amazing is the sex that you get to have with this guy where you get to be sometimes the guy that she has sex with. There's nothing to be ashamed about in that. Two human beings coming together, finding something that works for both of them, that gives both of them pleasure and enjoying the shit out of it and enjoying the shit out of each other. Sounds awesome. As problems to have go, pretty good one. Hey, Dan, 20-something, uh, straight male here, long-time listener and uh, fan. Just wondering, um, this might be like a no-brainer, but uh, what the hell. Is a uh, happy ending considered cheating or? Or what? A happy ending considered cheating or the appetizer course? I don't know what the what was coming after that or. Yes, I suppose it might be considered cheating. It depends on how your partner feels about it and whether in your relationship that would be out of bounds and defined as cheating. You could flip it on its head and ask yourself if you walked in on your, I assume your wife, uh, on a massage table with an attractive male masseuse who has three fingers in her vagina and is flailing away at her clitoris with his thumb and she's climaxing, would you feel like you'd been cheated on in that moment? Answer honestly, would you consider that cheating? Then if you would, maybe she would as well. Personally, I don't give a shit if you get a hand job from a sex worker that you treat respectfully, that you tip well, and that you make some effort to ensure is not being coerced into providing happy endings to frustrated or undersexed married men like you, assuming you're frustrated and undersexed. I don't have a problem with it. And if it's what you need to do to stay sane and stay married – Maybe it's in your wife's best interest that you blow off a little steam and a little excess ejaculate in this fashion and perhaps it could be filed under what she doesn't know, won't hurt her and there's no STI risk here so there's really no physical risk here and maybe it's just allowable in a little bit of a gray area. But that's not the question you asked, not mother may I do this and still consider myself in the final accounting a decent-ish monogamish-ish husband. Your question was, is this cheating? And the only person who can answer that question is your spouse. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old lesbian who is in a relationship with a 45-year-old lesbian. And, well, straight woman, actually. 
and we we've had a great time. We get along perfectly. We love each other. We've been together for two years now. The only issue is that not too long ago, my girlfriend spontaneously saw her ex-boyfriend again, and they um, connected as friends. And once she had told him, I'm actually in a relationship with a woman now, he was, you know, very intrigued and wanted to meet me. Now, this man has a lot of money, so he has the freedom to travel wherever he wants, eat wherever he wants, etc. I ended up meeting him. You know, he's a great guy, very nice, very funny, very witty. We did end up having a threesome with him, and now he seems to be coming back for more every time. He's taken us to New Orleans and to Paris, and although, you know, I'm dumb for accepting these um, trips, I thought, you know, he was a great person and maybe we would have a successful friendship, but every time it's like he seems to be wanting a threesome with us. And so the last trip we went with him on Paris... He made a very disrespectful comment to me, at least. We passed by a lingerie shop, and he asked us, oh, would you wear this lingerie for me? And I said, no, absolutely not. And, you know, it's very disrespectful of you to be asking us this because we're both in a relationship exclusively with each other, and we're not interested in, you know, being with you more than sexually whenever we want So my girlfriend got very upset. She said that I was being crazy and overreacting. And I just don't know what to do because this guy keeps butting into our relationship. He tries to, you know, buy me with with money. And I no longer want want him to be a part of our life. But my ex-girlfriend, you know, defends him and says that he's just a nice guy. And that's what guys do. And that, you know, no one's forcing me to do anything, which is true, but I feel like he's constantly just lingering in our relationship. Well, that was an interesting Freudian slip there toward the end of your question where you called your girlfriend your ex-girlfriend. I hope it hasn't come to that. I hope you're not going to break up with your girlfriend over this, but you guys may be at an impasse because your girlfriend clearly likes these trips and may like this guy independent of the trips, but the guy bundled together with these glamorous trips and vacations, she is into it and wants that spigot to stay open. She wants the glamorous vacations package with that dude. And that comes wrapped up with that dude's not entirely unreasonable expectation that there's a quid pro quo here, that this is a commodified relationship. He provides you guys with these expensive trips and vacations and gifts and you guys fuck the shit out of him. That's the deal. Whether it's been spoken or not, it doesn't make you sex workers, but it's a commodified relationship. It's an exchange of goods and services. So maybe it is kind of a sex workery situation and you and your girlfriend have just been able to be in a little bit of denial about it or you've been in a little bit of denial about it because he's just a friend that you had a three-way with who then took you on a vacation where you had another three-way and then took you on a vacation where you had another three-way and now took you on a vacation where you were probably going to have another three-way of your own volition and your own choosing. And he suggested maybe maybe you would wear this lingerie for him in the three-way that he expected was coming his way because that's not an unreasonable expectation considering all the three-ways that you guys have had with him on these vacations. If this isn't something that you're comfortable with, this kind of unspoken quid pro quo arrangement, 
where he provides you with these glamorous vacations. He spends a lot of money on you, doesn't hand money to you, doesn't put money on the nightstand for you, but spends a lot of money on you in the expectation that you're going to fuck him. Then you need to stop going on these vacations with him. That might cause a crisis in your relationship with your girlfriend because she likes these vacations and fucking him is the price of admission that she's willing to pay to go to fucking Paris. And if you're unwilling to pay that price, maybe the trips end because he may regard you two as a package deal. And I don't want to jump on you or jump down your throat or anything, but let's not be naive. It wasn't out of bounds for him to suggest that maybe considering your sexual relationship that you would wear this lingerie for him, that in addition to buying you the airline tickets and all the meals and paying for your hotel rooms, that he might also buy an article of clothing for you to wear. That wasn't unreasonable of him. It was a little odd of you to pretend that that was somehow out of bounds or that you and your girlfriend were having sex with him only when you wanted and for your own reasons. He's spending all this money on you for his reasons, his own reasons, which include all these fucking three ways with the lesbian couple. To sum up, if you're uncomfortable with his expectations, don't inflame them. Stop going on these trips with him or make it explicit that you are not having sex with him except when you want to. And he should make no demands on you about timing. He should have no expectations. He should suggest no garments or you're not coming. Again, however, this may lead to a crisis in your relationship with your girlfriend. You two need to get honest with each other about what's going on here. Because I think your girlfriend gets what's going on here. It only dawned on you what was really going on here outside that lingerie shop in Paris. Well, now you know. Now you know what's going on here. Because I told you. Hi, Dan. My name is Ariel. So I work with this guy. We've been working together for like two years. I'm like obsessed with him. I really like him. I'm gay. He He's straight. And you know, one time I did tell him like, we were in a cruise, work cruise. And I did say to him, you know, I like him. He was like, I don't want to know about it. And I don't want to know anything about that. Uh, at the same time, he's like misleading me because that's weird with me sometimes. A couple of days ago, we got into a, conf- not a confrontation, but we were like, whatever. And then I stopped like, you know, because I used to like give him chocolates and leave notes in his decks. And he never cared. He actually liked that. But one day I was like, you know, I'm going to stop chasing him, whatever. This is wrong. I'm just going to stop. He noticed that and he's came to me the other day and he's like, I noticed you don't talk to me anymore. I don't like that. We should be friends. And I was like, why would you say that? I mean, I, and I told him like, you know, I think it's the best thing, you know, just, I haven't, I don't hate you. I have nothing against you. It's just that I think that, you know, we should just, I mean, we work together. We can, if we need to talk about work, we can talk about work, but that's it. He's like, no, I want us to be the way we used to be before. Like you, you know, you play with me and stuff like that. I was like, Okay, and now I'm, I think I'm overthinking it. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should just let everything go, leave him alone, he's straight, or if I should just, like, do something about it. Back in the bad old days, a straight guy that a gay guy had a crush on would feel compelled to violently reject, sometimes physically violently reject, that gay guy because they wouldn't want other people to think that, they were gay. The straight guy wouldn't want people to think he was gay because he was clearly the 
object of affection for this gay guy or the gay guy clearly had a crush on him and then all eyes were on this, the straight identified guy and if he wasn't seen actively shoving that gay guy away violently being verbally abusive if not physically abusive people might think that he was gay because that's how you're supposed to react when a gay man has a crush on you and you're a straight guy you're supposed to be offended to your core and defend your heterosexuality and your masculinity because those things are fragile and require defending but here we are in a new era with new model straight guys who are so comfortable with their own sexuality, their own sexual identities, and so comfortable with gay men because they know gay men. Maybe they have gay men in their families. And they're so comfortable, many of them now, being on the receiving end of the male gaze. That's often what would make straight guys uncomfortable was for another guy to look at them the way they looked at women because they know what goes through their minds when they look at women like that. And they didn't want people, guys, looking at them like that and seeing their ankles up behind their ears. But we now live in the new world, new model straight guys who are comfortable being objectified by gay men. Look at Ben Cohen, the rugby player. I think it's rugby that he plays, uh, who's made kind of a career out of being this hunky, muscly, bearish uh, sex object for gay men. But he's straight. But he's totally fine with it. He loves the attention. Sounds like this guy loved the attention. And what wasn't to love? The chocolates, the notes, the consideration, you following him around like a puppy dog, the control that gave him in the workplace kind of over you, the benefits, mostly chocolate, that accrued to him because you had this crush on him and then that ended for a reason that I don't quite understand. You had some conflict or something, something went south and he misses that old relationship. Not because he wants to suck your dick or have his dick sucked by you, not because he isn't Straight, not because he's secretly gay, but because he's straight and so comfortable with the attentions or adoration of gay men that he may even get off on it a little bit, basking in it a little bit. There are guys now who enjoy the male gaze, being on the receiving end of it, even though they have no desire to be with men, to have sex with men. They're comfortable with their bodies. They're comfortable enough with the parts of themselves that are objects, their looks, their bodies, their chest, their dicks, their asses. That they can be objectified by another male without feeling freaked out about it. And that's what we wanted, right? That's the world that we wanted to create. Less freaked out by the existence of gay men, straight men. And here we are. None of that answers your question, though. What do you want to do? This guy, he offended you. You don't want to have this relationship with him anymore. You don't want to have this kind of relationship with him anymore. Probably not healthy for you as a gay man to be this crushed out on someone where nothing's ever going to come of it. So he misses the chocolates, he misses the notes, he misses the affection, he misses the perhaps control, he misses the objectification that you treated him to for his own reasons. I don't think you should turn that spigot back on. Not because he doesn't deserve it, he can find it with someone else, but because you can do better, you can focus all of that romantic attention on someone who could return the feeling and maybe put some chocolates on your desk and maybe suck your cock at some point. It's sad. I get it. I've had a couple of crushes on straight boys over the years myself, mostly from afar. I get it. Straight guys, they can be hot. It is kind of pathetic, though, to watch a gay guy endlessly pursue someone he's never going to have or someone he could never have. Find a gay guy at work to crush out on. Find a gay barista boy in the neighborhood near your office to crush out on. Somebody else in a respectful way to crush out on. 
Joining me in the studio, we have a very special guest from Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest and the Hawaiian Islands, Sarah Pentlicky. You're an OBGYN? I am. Thank you so much for coming in. We get a lot of questions that really need a medical professional, and I'm a lot of things, an asshole, a loudmouth, a jerk, but I am not a medical professional. And we really appreciate when folks from Planned Parenthood come and sit in and feel some of these questions with me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. How long have you worked for Planned Parenthood? Two years. And how do you like the work? Oh, I love my job. Is your office on fire right now? I uh, I don't think so. I, I hope not. I hope not. I'm <laughs> sick of this. these terrorists targeting Planned Parenthood. It must be some satisfaction to everyone at Planned Parenthood to see, paradoxically and ironically, Carly Fiorina's campaign go down in flames. I would love to see that woman have to confront the black and granite spots on her soul. Because really, it was her rhetoric and Huckabee's rhetoric pushing the anti-Planned Parenthood bullshit, deceptively edited videos about selling baby parts, which did not happen and never happened. Correct. That led to the shooting in Colorado. That person was basically running around with a gun, screaming, quoting Carly Fiorina and Mike Huckabee. Mm -hmm. So infuriating. I know. So it must have been some satisfaction to see Carly Fiorina out. Also, the Texas AG, a prosecutor investigated the videos at the Correct. request of all these anti-Planned Parenthood, anti-choice, Republican idiots. Turned and they it around on them. Brought mm -hmm. charges against yeah. the assholes who made the deceptive, mm -hmm. bullshit, lying videos that got people killed. Yes. That had to be Justice. very satisfying. It there must was. have been a lot of high fives around the office that day. It was pretty exciting. Yep. <laughs> but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk politics, the murderous, homicidal, fucking violent rhetoric of fucking assholes like Carly Fiorina. We're here to take callers, sex questions. You got it. Hi, Dan. I'm a, in my early 30s calling from Canada. Um, I'm in a relationship with a boy who has cheated on me in the past early on in our relationship. We've been together about two years. And in the last six months, even though he's been away a few times, has is adamant that nothing has happened. Um, I'm inclined to believe him, but... Starting yesterday or the day before, I have some serious symptoms that look like an STD to me. In fact, specifically herpes. I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. It's pretty serious, these symptoms. But I'm curious when he comes back and tells me that maybe, yes, it is. What are the odds that this remained left over from over a year ago when the cheating occurred versus is this proof that possibly things have been going on since then. So before we get to the particulars of this question, STI versus STD. Well, the distinction um, was sort of made in the sense that disease tends to have a set of symptoms and a lot of the sexually transmitted infections that we speak of may not actually have any symptoms. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to be clear that you may actually be asymptomatic and have an infection and not necessarily present more like a disease. Oh, I didn't know that. That's new information for me. There was just this moment where it was, you know, venereal disease, venereal disease, then sexually transmitted disease, STD, 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 and then suddenly one day it was all STI. And I adopted the new lingo. I am a new lingo adopter, but I never really understood why I was saying STI now instead of STD. I don't have a reference for that, but that was what I understood. But the memo went out. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> on to the particulars of this question. Boyfriend cheated a year ago. In the last couple of weeks, she's come down with what sounds like it might be herpes and she wants to know is this evidence of fresh cheating or could this have been laying in wait for her over the last year we will never know all right um, next question <laughs> herpes can um 
appear sort of at any time. He could have been a carrier for a long time and recently – She could have already had it? She could have already had it. This could be a recurrence. In fact, um, if it is HSV-2, uh, about 80 percent of people don't even know they have it. So it could be at a recurrent outbreak of an HSV that she already had. And how had. could it be recurrent if she didn't notice the first outbreak? Doesn't recurrent imply that there have been previous outbreaks? Yes. Um, however, there are many, many people walking around who truly do have HSV, herpes simplex virus, um, and don't know it. Because the first outbreak was didn't happen or was so minor you didn't really notice and there was a second ferocious outbreak that you took to be the first? Possibly, yes. Or you may have had other symptoms going on. You may have another a subsequent or a, um, concurrent infection that sort of took the front seat so you didn't realize that there was also this other infection occurring. Um, so there's several ways that that can happen. But let's slash at this with Occam's razor for a second. She's never had a sexually transmitted infection before or disease. She's never had symptoms before. Has a boyfriend who cheated. They patched it up. A year later, she comes down with a sexually transmitted infection. What's the likeliest scenario here? That she's one of those people who was a carrier and was asymptomatic for a long time and suddenly came down with symptoms or the boyfriend cheated again and brought an STD home? We really can't tell. I mean, there really is no way to know. Um, we do know that recurrences of herpes tend to happen when our immune system is challenged in other ways. So it's possible that at that moment she was also having some other cold or something else that was challenging her immune system that made this a likely time for her to have a herpes outbreak. Um, but really, there's no way to pinpoint it. But there's it. no way to rule it out either. Nope. This could be evidence that you'd already been a carrier or he'd already been a carrier before and you finally had an outbreak. It could be evidence that he did cheat on you and bring an ST, I, or D home, which sometimes happens. Correct. So the question for her going forward then is? Ask your partner. Trust his answer. And um, I mean, ideally also figure out if this is. You don't mean trust his answer. You mean apply your bullshit detectors and, <laughs> and figure out whether you can trust the answer. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that um, was communicated in the look on her face. I just had to translate that for people who can't see you. The other thing is that diagnosing herpes can be very challenging. Uh, we want it to be straightforward and simple, but it's not. And so it also, it's possible that whatever her symptoms are, are not herpes and she should see a doctor to figure that out as best she can. And a little word of reassurance about herpes. Not a big deal in the long run, typically? Yes. I have a little bit of a hard time um, because there's a big push to destigmatize herpes, which I am all for, that it's very common and it's very livable um, to live with herpes. It's totally okay. Um, but in the process of trying to destigmatize it, sometimes people devalue it mm -hmm. and people with herpes feel really bad. And so when I think but when because we of the stigma, right? So I think sometimes when we say no big deal, it comes across as get over it or deal with it. Oh, or, I see what you mean. And so it just mean. kind of, um, people feel really bad that they carry this burden and agreed. We need to destigmatize it to lessen that burden, but there's still a lot of, but in the destigmatization process, we don't want to make it sound like we're saying to people who've been hurt by the stigma, get over that. Correct. So we want to honor your hurt if the stigma has right. bitten you on the ass while also saying to everybody else, can we get over this please? And like drain the stigma because it's exactly out of, exists out of all proportion to the actual impact and it hurts people who have herpes. Correct. Unlike HIV or some other sexually transmitted infections where your life is in danger because of it, um, there's pretty rare things that can happen with herpes. There's herpes encephalitis and some other things. But for the most part, people live very comfortably and normal lives with herpes and it is quite common. Um, so about one in six 
people have herpes type 2 and probably upwards more of 50 plus percent have herpes type 1. Hi, Dan. Straight, 26-year-old, married female, calling on behalf of my 19-year-old transgender brother. I'm trying to figure out what exactly he wants from a relationship and I started using Tinder um, and maybe he meets up with someone once every two months and recently called me and asked me whether I think he should get he should get an IUD. Um, he is on testosterone, so I know this reduces the chance of pregnancy, but there's still a chance. Um, but an IUD seemed pretty extreme for his sort of situation, um, so I recommended that he just continue using condoms, um, and that really should suffice for the time being. And I mean, IUDs are a bit expensive. I have one, but I have sex fairly frequently. But um, I thought that maybe I'd get your two cents on transgender um, birth control issues a little bit. I'm most interested in your two cents on this issue. Is an IUD too much for a trans man who's having intercourse? No. For several reasons. One is if he is having sex that could result in pregnancy, it is still possible for him to get pregnant. Um, The best I could see is that testosterone um, in high doses probably mimics progesterone, which is really the key hormone in preventing ovulation. Mm -hmm. So it's it's probable that he's not ovulating often, but I don't think we could put a number on exactly statistically how often he is ovulating. So if he's having sex that could result in pregnancy, I would recommend birth control. And I think an IUD is particularly great for two reasons. One, we do have hormonal IUDs. So if he's having any bleeding at all, those hormonal IUDs typically decrease bleeding and often cases make it go away altogether. Mm -hmm. So there may be benefit there as well if he's concerned about having any uterine bleeding. The other thing I think that's important is, uh, for example, a copper IUD is good for 12 years. And so in some ways he could sort of forget about that part, which when I've talked to trans men about sort of their uterus, um, a lot of them want to have this ability to sort of forget that it even exists. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that crosses my mind separate from an IUD is actually um, sterilization as well, which I've also done. We have an in-office procedure called an ESURE that is a permanent sterilization. And that also kind of, I think, mentally gives them the ability to not have to really think about it. But there at are all. some trans men who do want to get pregnant at some Correct. point in their lives oh, and yes, have their own children. Absolutely. So for some people, they want, and I think the IUD is great because mm-hmm. it's completely reversible. I mean, especially if you're just not sure. She didn't seem you, to be saying an IUD is wrong for a trans man. She seemed to be saying that an IUD is wrong for someone who's only having penetrative vaginal intercourse a few times a year. Would you disagree with that? For women or men who have uteri and vaginal intercourse? Is an IUD like overkill if you're only having vaginal intercourse three times a year? No, I, I, I don't think that because the IUD and the implant actually also are our most highly effective methods. And so you shouldn't have to use a less effective method just because you have sex infrequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a highly effective method is always a good idea for someone who does not want to be pregnant. And that really leaves us with IUDs and implants. Um, With the caveat, we always have to throw it out there, an IUD is not going to protect you from sexually transmitted infection. It provides no protection, unlike condoms, which provide a great deal to slash some, depending on which sexually transmitted infection you're talking about. Exactly. So I think an IUD can be perfect also because 
especially if sex is a little bit more sporadic, you don't have to sort of think about it in that moment. It's already there. You're not worried about sort of what am I going to do to prevent sex? I mean, pregnancy in this particular instance, because mm-hmm. it's not something you're doing often. I want to lay to rest the fears of some trans men who may be listening. Trans men are welcome at Planned Parenthood. Absolutely. Trans men are welcome to identify as trans men, to come in and get reproductive health care services from IUDs to abortion to screenings. Correct. Absolutely. We welcome all people um, and specifically have, see many transgender people in our clinic. And is there Planned Parenthood-wide trainings around sensitivity and around trans issues so that wherever the trans man may be in the country, they don't have to be in a city with a lot of trans people like San Francisco or Portland, that if they're in a smaller town that has a Planned Parenthood facility, they're still going to encounter people who know what they're doing and are receptive and welcoming? There are trainings that can be done and certainly specific clinic. I can't speak to all clinics around the country, but um, it is certainly a goal of Planned Parenthood to make sure that we are welcoming to all people. Um, and there are specific trainings that um, we do and hopefully all of Planned Parenthood affiliates are doing. Hi, Dan. This is a caller from a major American city, and I was listening to your segment last week about HPV. Um, one thing I was curious about is where one can go for testing for HPV, because any time that I've asked a healthcare provider or uh, local STD uh, services clinics, I've been told that there are no effective tests for uh, HPV or that there's too many of them, and it's very difficult to single out any one particular strain. So, uh, if you have any resources about where to find testing for HPV, be greatly appreciated to hear about those. Thanks. You're an OBGYN. You're a gynecologist. Correct. HPV. I can't say it. The human papillomavirus. That's the only way I can pronounce. How do you pronounce it? You have to know how to pronounce it correctly. Human papillomavirus. Human papillomavirus. Why do I have such trouble with that? It's a long word. I don't know. <laughs> It's one of those words you read and you never think you're going to have to say out loud. And then the first time you say it out loud, you sound like an idiot. I think when you grow up with a last name like Pentlicky, you kind of <laughs> learn how to say words like that pretty easily. <laughs> are there tests for HPV? Uh, there are tests for HPV. Um, we do not test men for HPV. Uh, HPV is very prevalent. We assume actually that most sexually active people who've had more than one partner or their partner has had more than one partner have been exposed. Are you telling me I have been exposed to HPV? Yes, probably. I'd put, I'd put money on it. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm fine with that. But we don't test – we actually even in women only test areas of the body, for example, the cervix where we know HPV um, is har- – that's where we harbor HPV. And then also the biggest concern for women in most cases is cervical cancer, which we know is caused by HPV. So in men, it could be on your skin, but there's not really – we don't do antibody blood tests and there's not really a, a – location where we would sort of swab or test you to see if you have active HPV. What about in gay men where they say that HPV can be related to anal cancer and uh, signal Is there a test for that? Can gay there men is. go in and get mm-hmm. – There are anal pap smears actually mm-hmm. is sort of the terminology that we use. Um, and they can actually just like we take a sample of cells off the cervix, they can take a sample of cells from the rectum. And then if you have a strain of HPV that is related strongly to cancer, then it's just watchfulness that's required. You want to try to catch it early. Correct. Because there's um, no cure. No. In fact, we the way I sort of describe HPV to a lot of my patients is um, it's almost more like a cold. There's mm-hmm. many, many strains of HPV. Many of us are going to get one or several strains and we're going to clear those um, strains to a point where we're undetectable in our bodies. And that's where we want to be because as long as the virus isn't replicating, it's not usually causing any 
abnormalities that are going to lead to cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do for uh, rectal HPV, we do watch this, make sure that that dysplasia doesn't get worse. Mm-hmm. Same thing with um, cervical dysplasia. Um, and then for cervical dysplasia, we will do excisional procedures to sort of remove any cells if they become closer to cancer, still pre-cancer, but as they get progress. So the advice for this guy is unless you're a gay man and you're talking about your butt, there's really not much we can test for. Correct. If you have genital warts, which is another manifestation of HPV, those can be removed and tested or um, treated. And um, so that's another way to know that you've had exposure and that you actually have active virus. But correct. There's no screening test for HPV um, for men. Quick uh, plug for the vaccine. If you are the parent of a young child, male or female or non-binary, get them vaccinated against HPV. We have a really effective vaccine, a couple of them, for different strains of HPV, the cancer-causing strains of HPV. And I think it's parental negligence bordering on malpractice for you not to get your kids vaccinated against HPV. Yes, I strongly encourage vaccination. Um, It can start at nine for boys and girls. Um, It's covered by insurance until you turn 27. So as long as you get your first injection before 27. Um, It prevents specifically against, well, there's a new one out that prevents um, against nine strains, but probably cross-reacts with other strains. And the way I usually talk about it is this is a vaccine against cancer. And it sort of takes away the STD portion of it or the STI portion of it and um, really puts in focus that this could prevent cancer in your child. Let's talk about disclosure really quick. You know, we know now about HPV. We used to say that if you have HPV, it's like herpes, you have it forever, it's never going away. Now we say your body will clear it in time most likely. So if somebody has HPV or had HPV, we tested for HPV, and then it's five years later. They never had another outbreak, never had another ward. Their pap smears are clear. Their butt smears are clear. Are they still obligated to disclose? Should they still be disclosing? Do they still have HPV? We, you do, for the most part, you, you most likely do still have HPV. We believe that HPV lives in reservoirs because we, we also know that um, at certain times in your life, you may redevelop an abnormal pap smear, for example, mm-hmm. um, if your immune system is compromised in some way. Um, and that's probably not a new HPV infection. It's probably an old HPV infection. So you do sort of will probably always have small reservoirs, undetectable reservoirs of HPV. Are you infectious when you're undetectable, a la HIV? No. Um, we most... don't think so. I mean, okay. the problem, I think the biggest issue is no matter who you disclose to, again, we don't have tests for men. So the, the, the assumption is that most sexually active people have already been exposed and they're probably exposing you. Right. So the question, you know, at the before, same time that you're exposing them. So the, before, if you feel obligated or you're, do you feel guilty about not disclosing, you could just ask them first if they've had more than one other sex partner. And if the answer is yes, you can, you can brush it off because they're probably already exposed, probably already have HPV. Correct. And hopefully in another five or ten years' time, they're probably all vaccinated. Yes, that's the hope. Now, the other thing is um, the one sort of, again, caveat would be active genital warts. So you'd want to get those treated or cover them um, to prevent skin-to-skin transmission at that time because we know the virus is actively replicating at that time. Hey, Dan and Techrit Savvy at Risk Youth. I have a problem. I started having sex with a guy and it was incredible and he's great and perfect to us. And then we decided that we should both get tested for STDs and he hadn't been tested in like six years. What the heck? And 
I get regularly tested. Okay, so then I mostly decided to get tested because we had anal sex unprotected. Then I had this horrible, crazy rash and breakout happen, and it was literally the worst thing ever. And it lasted for like almost two weeks, and I it was just the worst. So I went and got tested, and I'm I was in Utah when I was being tested, and they're just horrible big jerks. And first off, my doctor was like so upset that you know, I would even have a question about if someone was being monogamous or not or whatever. So he was giving me dirty looks because I was like, oh, yeah, it could have been anything. And we were having anal sex, blah, blah, blah. And so I wanted to get tested specifically for herpes. And he said we could take a sample, you know, during pap smear test, whatever, from my cervix. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, but what about anal herpes? And he and, I, and then I said, well, do I need a blood test? Can I do a blood test as well? He was like, no, no, blood test doesn't tell you anything. Like, this is all you need, and you'll have an answer, yes or no. So I've been looking online, and I cannot find if I, I mean, if you have herpes, do you just have herpes? Is that just it? Or can you have just anal herpes? Or can you just have whatever? He was like the worst doctor ever, so I need another one. Thanks. Well, luckily, we have another one sitting right here for you. So can she just have butt herpes or just herpes, herpes, and that's it, and it's everywhere? Herpes, herpes, it's everywhere. It's all the same. Well, it's all the same, but you can have a localized infection. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah, so she could have had a single outbreak. Of butt herpes or herpes in the butt. Correct. So continue to wipe from front to back. Don't start wiping from back to front in contravention of wiping best practices. Exactly. Because you wouldn't want to spread the herpes from your butt around. Well, yes. You don't want to spread herpes, period. So if you have an active lesion, you want to try and decrease any other skin-to-skin contact on yourself even. But if she's careful, then the herpes, once this outbreak is passed, she won't accidentally migrate it somehow herself from her but to her badge. She can have outbreaks anywhere now if she truly has Oh, I'm so confused. Yes. Okay. No, she can have out- – I mean probably also because it's going to be near impossible not to have some of that the, – Migrate. Her, yeah. I mean the, the, the blisters virus. are going to burst at some point and that is potentially going to spread elsewhere. So she can have uh, – she could potentially have outbreaks in the future elsewhere. Okay. What should she have done? What's the best advice that you would give someone when they encounter a sex-negative, wrinkly-nosed doctor in Utah who thinks you're a disgusting pervert because you had anal sex with somebody that you weren't necessarily monogamous with? You got a doctor who's freaking out at you. The, the, the advice is get in a time machine and go to Planned Parenthood instead of going yeah, to some runaway. private practitioner in goddamn Utah somewhere? Um, I mean it's back to stigma and certainly stigma around anal sex as well as probably stigma around herpes separately. Um, I mean, try and go in as well informed as you can. And I mean, I guess also. How often do you folks at Planned Parenthood hear stories from women about being slut shamed by their doctors? Uh, Because it sounds like what was going on here. She's being slut shamed by dirty looks. and. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty. I mean, I don't know how many times patients disclose it to me, but it's not that uncommon to hear um, how they were, how someone was treated 
elsewhere that they what are the doctors who do that thinking like this person's going to come back some other time in the future with a with a sex related question and feel free to ask me about it or this person is going to shut down and not reach out to me as their physician if they have concerns in the future about their sexual health or i guess that they'll be shamed enough into being monogamous and or celibate at that point um I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't I know just, what the goal is. Yeah, I don't get the agenda. I don't mm-hmm. get what sex negative shaming doctors are are driving for. I don't want you to be my patient or I don't want you to talk to me about these things. I'd rather your genitals rot and fall off than ever hear about them again. Or what's the end goal when a doctor engages in these kinds of sex shamey bullshit practices? Well, I think I think also what it usually speaks to is a level of discomfort with the topic. So in some ways, I think they are hoping that you won't come back to talk about this with them and that hopefully you will find someone else to talk about it with. Um, because I think a lot of people... How does sexual included, health not factor into primary health care? People don't want to talk about anal sex. They don't want to talk about STIs. They don't want to talk about multiple sexual partners. We have a lot of... That's all we talk about here. I know. Who are I these know. people who don't want to talk about all those things? Exactly. That's why we're here. Um, <laughs> no, it's just there's it, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I think, yeah, so I think at some level, not that they want to abandon their patient, but that it's it's uncomfortable. You know what I think is really positive about this call, though? She doesn't sound wrecked by the way she was treated by this doctor. She, The caller clearly understands the doctor was the one with the problem mm-hmm. here. Not her with her butt sex, not her with her sexually transmitted infection, not her with her boyfriend that she's not necessarily in a monogamous relationship with. The doctor was the problem. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm impressed actually that she was able to – Talk about it as much as she, you know, states that she did. Yeah, we got we got calls from people who had similar encounters with doctors who were traumatized and mm-hmm. and and crying on oh, the yeah. phone about the way they were treated. So it's good to see. And caller, props to you. Absolutely. That you went in there and you're like, oh, this guy's fucked in the head. I'm fine. <laughs> I might have a sexually transmitted infection and a sore butt, but I'm fine. He's a mess. Hi, Dan, and the tech savvy at risk youth. My cousin and I have a question for you. My cousin has a 17-year-old son who has a serious girlfriend, fairly certain that both the 17-year-old boy and the girl are having sex for the first time with one another. Uh, They're using condoms consistently. And the question we have for you is, I think that's all they're using. And the debate we're having is, is that enough? And what the general accepted practice is, I'm old enough not to have a sense anymore of whether that's enough if used well. And, you know, again, one big question is, is he using the condom well? Does he know how to? But if we assume that he is and they're being smart, um, should she also be using birth control or some other kind of contraceptive as well? Um, What's the general recommendation? What do you recommend? Uh, Any advice would be helpful. Thanks so much. I recommend anal. What do you recommend to work around this problem? Uh, birth control. <laughs> Other than condoms. Other than condoms or in yes. addition to condoms? In addition to condoms. As certainly if unplanned pregnancy or pregnancy is not in the plans, um, then a highly effective method is always a great place to start. I know that effectiveness is not always everyone's primary concern with birth control, but certainly um, if – Pregnancy is not something that they want to achieve at this time. A highly and effective method. Hopefully, it's fucking not at age seventeen. Highly effective method. So, um, but certainly any additional contraception would be great. I mean, condoms work well when they are used correctly. Correctly. And that's a conversation you should have with these kids immediately, even if you're going to get them to a Planned Parenthood 
or get them to a physician and get them on some other form of birth control as well, you need to have a conversation about whether they're using condoms correctly because the rate, the difference between the effectiveness of condoms when used perfectly and the effectiveness through average use where people don't remember to hold them when they take them off, where they don't pinch the top when rolling it down so there's not enough room in the top, condoms break. Well, that was going to be the other thing is condoms break. And or and sometimes it's visible and sometimes it's not. So that's the inherent flaw with condoms is just that they can fail you even when you think they're protecting you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and they're likely to fail you if you're using them incorrectly. Correct. So go to the Planned Parenthood website, read about how to use it correctly, drag that boy over and show him that page and then walk away so he doesn't have to watch you watch him read it. But make sure he reads it. And there are videos Absolutely. about the correct way to put a condom There's on. even the um, teacher from the South who did this sock. They couldn't teach how to use condoms in school, so he did a sock demonstration. That one's also really I'm sure good. he got fired for it, right? I, I don't know. But, <laughs> um, but the other thing I usually tell people if you are using condoms as your primary form of contraception is emergency contraception. should also be something that you know of and have on possibly hand. even in the medicine cabinet already. Absolutely. Um, there's two primary types of emergency contraception. There's Plan B, which is over-the-counter. can be very expensive, but uh, you can buy it in a pharmacy. And then there's another one called Ella, which is olopristal acetate. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's by prescription only. Um, it can be very hard to get in pharmacies. We do have it at Planned Parenthood that you can buy um, and get a prescription for for it with us. Um, and that one's slightly more effective primarily because it's good for up to five days after unprotected sex and really maintains its effectiveness over those five days. Another issue with 17-year-olds and young people and condoms is leakage. Even if there's not breakage – some 17-year-old boys pumping out some massive loads. Sorry for being gross, everybody. And sometimes people, you know, post-coitus just want to sort of lay there and hold each other and the dick is deflating and the condom still in the vaginal canal is being squeezed. And if the condom is, you know, the end of the condom is slightly inside the vaginal canal, it can squeeze semen out and then you can reach down and remove it carefully, thinking you're being careful, and the condom didn't break, and you can see most of the semen is in the condom. What you think is all of the semen is mm-hmm. still in the condom, but actually, you could have a leak. Yeah, and condoms can come off during sex. There's, I mean, there's lots of. We sound like religious conservatives right now. <laughs> religious conservatives are always saying condoms don't work. Condoms don't work. You're gonna get pregnant. You're gonna get AIDS. You're gonna die. Don't listen to Planned Parenthood. And yet here we are. Don't listen to Dance After. Here we are saying. There are all these variables that can contribute to their failure that you have to bear in mind when you use them. It doesn't mean they're not effective when Correct. properly used. Absolutely. No, and you should – You should use condoms. Use them even if you're using some other form of birth control, particularly with randos. Especially – I mean it is our only – I mean male and female condoms are our only barriers for STIs. So certainly if there's any concern about It's going to prevent HIV. It's going to make it much less likely to uh, pass syphilis or gonorrhea or chlamydia. Or to acquire it. Absolutely. But in terms of birth control as a primary birth control method, I usually recommend a more effective method um, and at least um, combining it with emergency contraception. And you need to talk to this boy in advance because – and his girlfriend too. Perhaps someone needs to speak to her as well. But he needs to assess his own risks here because if there is leakage, if there is a break, if she gets pregnant, everything's out of his hands at that moment. The next 18 years of his life – are in someone else's hands to make a decision about. And I get letters from freaked out, scared, 16, 17, 18-year-old boys whose girlfriends are pregnant and want to know what they can do about it and nothing. Wait. Unless she terminates, but 
Well, but that's her decision. Of course, absolutely. And you can have your no, two it is cents. That, I mean, it, yeah, absolutely. You know, you're allowed to have an opinion about what should be done, but ultimately she decides what will be done. Or absolutely. Not. The time to move to protect your own future, young men, is before your girlfriend is pregnant. And you can say, I'm not comfortable having vaginal intercourse if you're not on a hormonal – if you're not on some other form of birth control that works for you besides just condoms. Exactly. You have the right to advocate for yourself just as she does mm-hmm. and should be encouraged to. But young men, you can say, I know you want my penis in you, but I'm not comfortable with that because if there's a leak, if there's a break, if all we're using is condoms, the consequences for me could be tremendously significant as well. Absolutely. We don't say that to boys. Not enough. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old woman living in New York City. I'm calling in hopes that you could help shed some light on an abortion process called manual aspiration. I discovered it while researching the right abortion process for myself. The procedure is a non-surgical option with no anesthesia, no scraping, no sharp instruments, loud machines, or vacuums, and there's no recovery time, which is very different from the vacuum aspiration abortion. At the time, the only information I could find referred to it as menstrual extraction. Evidently, it was invented in 1971 as a safer, illegal abortion method. Once abortions were legalized, vacuum abortion became the, the preferred method, even though the other method is much easier for the patient and less complicated for the doctor. I checked with Planned Parenthood and they didn't offer it and had never heard of it. They performed the vacuum aspiration. The clinic I chose confirmed that, yes, this process is painless and I would be able to resume regular activities following the procedure. And unlike the vacuum aspiration abortion offered by Planned Parenthood, it has less possible side effects. I asked why this is not commonly available, and she said, and I quote, I do not know. When I got to the office, they explained the entire process. First, an ultrasound. Then they would insert a needle into my cervix. Next, they would insert a narrow tube. I would feel some intense but painless cramping lasting about two minutes. There would be some bleeding after, so I would have to wear a maxi pad. Once again, I asked the nurse how this could be so easy and why people don't know about it and why it's not the popular option. And again, she said, I don't know. The procedure was exactly as described. The needle prick was no big deal. I felt some cramps and nausea that lasted for about 30 seconds. It seemed too good to be true. When I hear of women being traumatized by the abortion process, I wonder if this option was available to them and how it could be made more commonly available to women in the future. Dan, why are manual aspiration abortions not commonly practiced if it's less invasive and easier and an easier process? Why doesn't Planned Parenthood offer this? How would one suggest this method to Planned Parenthood? Any insight or opinions you could share would be great. Dr. Pentlicky, why isn't manual aspiration more commonly practiced? Manual aspiration is very commonly practiced. Uh, it's practiced at our Planned Parenthood and at many, many, many abortion clinics around the country and around the world. Um, I think the biggest thing that's happening um, or that the caller is ref- is referencing is this is a lot of semantics. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, we typically refer to the manual aspiration as manual vacuum aspiration. Um, the practice of using a manual aspirator as opposed to an electric vacuum aspirator uh, wasn't as common for a long time. Um, unclear exactly why. Because it uh, doesn't use electricity, it's quiet, it's, they're easy to clean, you can sterilize them, et cetera. Um, so manual vacuum aspiration uh, is basically the same thing. Um, but I think a lot of people are um, confused when it's quiet because they expect to hear an electric machine. So they're, they are surprised when it's finished. Um, I think her description of the procedure is actually 
quite accurate. Um, however, everyone experiences it a little bit differently. I mm-hmm. wouldn't say that it's painless for everyone. Some people don't have very much pain at all. Other people do experience severe cramping that they interpret as pain. Um, so I think her doctor's office really just used a lot of terminology that made it sound like something else. And then, of course, depending on who she spoke to at Planned Parenthood or elsewhere, um, we usually describe it as an MVA, as a manual vacuum aspirator. So the word vacuum is still in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of us have gotten away from the historical DNC, which is dilation and curatage, which was more of a scraping process. And so um, because we're using this plastic uh cannula, which she was describing as a straw. Um, we kind of don't use the same metal instruments, et cetera. And so a lot of people have changed the language that we use. Mm-hmm. And also So she wasn't less... talking about something that isn't done. Mm-mm, at Planned Parenthood. No. This is done. Yes. There's just a different name for it. And Correct. some folks use slightly different equipment, same thing. Exactly. Yes. Dr. Pentlicky, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. Was there anything we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about today? Well, actually, I did want to mention a couple of websites, if I could. Of course, of course. Um, one was bedsider.org, which is a great organization and actually was one of the few places I could find any um, information about uh, contraception for transgender men. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is American Sexual Health Association, also has really wonderful information. Um, and then specifically about herpes, which is just a topic that is hard to talk about. Our screening tests are not very good um, and can really open a Pandora's box when people are concerned about having herpes. Um, but Westover Heights Clinic in Oregon, in Portland, Oregon, actually their website also was really, really helpful and wonderful. So check those out. Do you have any sex questions for me? Do you need my advice about anything? Anything at all? I'm sure I do. Um... <laughs> You're just sure you don't want it. We'll turn the mics <laughs> off and have a chat. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in regards to episode 486, which I was just listening to and enjoying. I am a sex worker myself. And the first question, thanks for being a champion for us. Can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Um, There are very few of you, it seems, out there. But uh, to that guy and to anyone else who's interested in hiring a sex worker, so Craigslist, back page, horrible, horrible idea. Stay very far away from those. That's where all the guys go first. They seem to land there first, and they're law enforcement targets. Law enforcement uses Craigslist and Backpage. They don't use other websites like the Eros Guide so far as yet. (laughs) So the Eros Guide is one of the websites that's still up and running, thank God. It's a really great place to find a lady. I would just add to find an independent self-employed provider Having their own website is good. Being reviewed is good. Also, only see providers who screen you. It's very important. Um, Those of us who take our own safety seriously always screen our clients, ask for references or employment information, and that protects the client as well as the provider. And um, so if if a provider isn't screening you, that's a red flag. Those of us who are professional and legitimate take your safety very, very seriously and confidentiality very, very seriously. Hi, I am calling in response to Staingate about the guy who freaked out over the blood on the sheets of his bed after getting a blowjob. I have to say that you should not you should not respond to this and you shouldn't tell the girl that you know just completely brush it off as if it never happened. That is like the ultimate 
fear of a lot of girls is that eventually they're going to bleed somewhere and a cute guy that they like is going to find it or see it. And it's just the most embarrassing thing in the world. It's just a really shitty thing as girls have to deal with. And please don't be an asshole about it. I'm calling in response to the woman on episode 486 who was worried that she would never be able to come with a partner again after she and her ex broke up. Well, girl, now you know you can do it. That's huge. There's such a mental component to orgasms. And with partners before him, you might have been putting all this pressure on yourself about not being able to come with someone else there. Well, now you've broken the seal, so to speak, and that should help you with future partners. It's so much easier to do something when you already know you can. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. If you want to get a fuck first mug for your, not Valentine, because Valentine's Day is over, for your leprechaun, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. Go to thestranger.com slash swag. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Planned Parenthood on Twitter at PPAC. That's at P-P-A-C-T. Speaking of Twitter, Hot Buttered Harumph tweets, Whoa, sex workers in their 20s are older. Did I hear that right at FakeDanSavage? Yes, you did hear that right. In helping people avoid those who may have been coerced into doing sex work, best to go with older sex workers. 20s, older in comparison to teens. And that's what that was in my question. Thanks for your tweet. Thanks for holding Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for